But now, it is time for Mariella Meets, and this is where every day I speak in depth to fascinating people from the worlds of entertainment, the arts, and public life. Uh, But maybe today I've met my match because my guest this afternoon does something very similar for an award-winning, chart-topping live podcast he's now taking on tour. He's best known, though, as a comedian, as a TV regular, enduring stand-up star, and former partner of Stuart Lee, professional partner, I should point out. He's also the author of nine books, including Can I Have My Ball Back, a memoir of his experience with testicular cancer. Richard Herring, uh, good afternoon. Hello. Hello. Um, Can we just start uh, maybe with Can I Have My Ball Back? Because what I was really interested in, um, in terms of sort of things you've said about it, was the idea that, that, that even though this was really bad news, obviously, when you were diagnosed, that there was a part of you that thought, excellent material. <laughs> Is that actually true? Well, yeah, I think as a comedian, on, on every comedian I've talked to kind of goes, you you know, you get, have you, have you managed to get something like this? Because as long as it doesn't kill you, and even if it kills you eventually, there's comedy and everything. So, you know, I sort of was aware of, you know, this, this, it sort of felt weird to, that this happened to me because I've, I've concentrated on this area quite a lot in my career. I did, uh, I did a male answer to the vagina monologues, which was a show in a book. I did, I did, uh, a show called Hitler Moustache, and now I've got the same number of testicles as Hitler supposedly has. So it, there was all these kind of weird coincidences coming in. So you could see, but but it, it was it was a weird thing because obviously, as scary as it was, right at the beginning, especially funny things were happening all the time. So you know, I've written a book about it. I'm working up as a stand-up show, and uh, you sort of balance it up and go, how much would you sell your <laughs> sell a testicle for? Uh, and you might go, okay, well, that three years work for one testicle. Is is pretty good value. <laughs> so you've done the equation you play, with a head for economics, as I can yeah. see, Richard. Yeah, it's a pound of flesh, isn't it? I suppose so. Yeah, yeah basically, yeah. Well, it was, that, that was quite a big testicle then. Obviously, it was, it was by the time it came out, Mariella. I don't want to go into too much details, but yes, it was. well, funnily enough, on the mention of not going into too much details, I did wonder. You know, I mean, you talked about you know personal and scary. Um, those two elements. Do you think anything can be too personal or too too scary or do you think that those absolutely are what lend themselves to the best sort of comedy that that somehow it has to be painful it doesn't have to be painful yeah it doesn't have to be painful but I think the great thing about something awful happening is if you can if you can confront it with humor if you've got no control over the situation especially with, with something like cancer obviously you're you're not really in control. You're, you're hoping the doctors can control it. So I think if you can face it in a positive way and in a humorous way, it just really helps you. And I think also the great thing about being a comedian, uh, maybe unusually for men, is I talk about everything. And and by talking about everything, you help yourself, you help other people. Also, you know, my, my wife and I discussed whether I would go public with this. Uh, but I'm delighted I did because uh, even at the time, because, I you know, I got lots of messages from people saying, oh, I've been through this and it's OK. And it's 30 years ago and I'm fine. So, you know, it, it's a reciprocal thing. But by finding the humour in something, I think you get power over it, even if it's, it, you know, as it turns out, testicular cancer, I didn't find out until after the, the testicle had been removed. It's, it's you know, it's it's one that a lot of people survive. So it's got a 95 to 99 percent survival rate. Um, that you know, which doesn't diminish it, but it, but it's uh, but you know, it, it's it, out of all the can- cancers to get, it was uh, it was you know the luckiest and and probably the funniest as well. Unfortunately, just because of the area it's in, I, I'm laughing because you think <laughs> that they would have told you that 
in order yes. to set your mind at rest as you went into the sort of scary ride that was, uh, you know, treatment and, 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 and so on. Yeah, I would have liked if they had, but, but you know, and that's my only criticism. The NHS were amazing. This all happened in tw- early 2021. So they were busy with other stuff, but they were absolutely amazing. I think they they couldn't confirm it was cancer until it was out. So I think they're not allowed to say, talk about cancer until it's confirmed as cancer. But but equally, by by thinking, I, I generally thought I would, I'd had it. I'd had a friend who uh, died just a few months before and... Um, in similar circumstances to me and uh it, it you know I, and it was but it was quite good to be confronted with your own mortality to think about what was important to you uh and you know it made me sort of determined to make the best of however long I've got left really which you know I think I was living quite an unhealthy life anyway regardless of what of the cancer which has nothing to do with that but uh you know so it kind of pushed me towards better health and appreciating being alive while we're alive but that must have made it even more terrifying, you say you lost a friend to the same condition a few months well, he, before. He, he had a sort of much worse cancer, but it, but he was in. He had, he had a young. I've got a very young family. He's the same age as me, but had a uh, had, his son was seven when he died. Mm. So I'd literally just before lockdown been you know doing the eulogy at his funeral, and and so I just you know in the moment that I got the news that there was something in there, yeah, it was it was like I was thinking of him, but I was also thinking of my my kids you know obviously that's you're going to be your priority but it but it was I in the moment I got the phone call through I wasn't thinking oh brilliant I can do that show after all I was thinking oh no you know and and, and quickly working out how I would provide for my family if, if the worst happened so yeah. but I, but I think but I think um you know but that, that it's quite good to be forced to confront that and it's quite good to to check your priorities and I and I this I'm back on the road now. I'm going to take this podcast out on tour and probably do a tour of this stand-up show. But I've been deliberately spending more time with my family. You know, in lockdown we had to obviously, but I, I've sort of realised you know what's more important. And obviously you have to work a bit to keep your family alive. But equally, I I really appreciate uh, what I've got as a result of all this. I think I may so have I, 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 I may have got the um the, the timing wrong, wrong, but I think you actually campaigned around the issue of testicular cancer even before uh, you had it, but certainly you've talked about it a lot subsequently. And you won't find uh, anyone more committed than me to, to drawing attention to the fact that women's health is underinvested in and, yes. you know, needs an awful lot more work and, and so of on. Course. But I wonder if you feel that the same is true of... I mean, I, I'm always really quite surprised that prostate cancer, for example, and maybe testicular cancer, which I know less about, um, aren't, you know, screened properly and regularly in the same way as women have, you know, breast cancer screenings and so on. It feels like that that particular area of men's health hasn't really moved with the times. No, I'd agree with that. Yeah, and I did. I Weirdly, I'd done November like like a month and a half before I found out I had testicular cancer. So in a way, uh, luckily, I'd raised uh, some funds for to help myself, I suppose, which was quite good, but unknowingly. Um, but yeah, it's, you know, I think w- with men, you know, and I left it for a few weeks before I went to the doctors. So when, especially with these areas, we kind of don't talk enough about it and have a stiff upper lip. Obviously, like with, with COVID going on, I sort of thinking I don't want to worry anyone with my, you know, my oversized <laughs> testicle uh, while, while, while they're going through all this other stuff. So, you know, yeah, it's, it, it is something that, uh, but yeah, absolutely for men and women, but uh, we we should be t- taking more time with and i think it's with with testicular cancer and breast cancer as well it's getting to know yourself 
and you know and if you if you notice anything different just get straight to your gp and i was absolutely flabbergasted with how efficient and brilliant the nhs were at this worst time to possibly get cancer as well so you know and it was it was so fast and and so efficient and uh, aside from them not telling me that i had a very good chance of surviving it was it was it was brilliantly the number one selling product of its kind with over 20 years of research and innovation botox cosmetic out botulinum toxin a is a prescription medicine used to temporarily make moderate to severe frown lines crow's feet and forehead lines look better in adults Effects of Botox Cosmetic may spread hours to weeks after injection, causing serious symptoms. Alert your doctor right away as difficulty swallowing, speaking, breathing, eye problems, or muscle weakness may be a sign of a life-threatening condition. Patients with these conditions before injection are at highest risk. Don't receive Botox Cosmetic if you have a skin infection. Side effects may include allergic reactions, injection site pain, headache, eyebrow and eyelid drooping, and eyelid swelling. Allergic reactions can include rash, welts, asthma symptoms, and dizziness. Tell your doctor about medical history, muscle or nerve conditions including ALS or Lou Gehrig's disease, myasthenia gravis, or or Lambert-Eaton syndrome and medications, including botulinum toxins, as these may increase the risk of serious side effects. For full safety information, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. See for yourself at BotoxCosmetic.com. Um, you've talked about this um, on your podcast, so those who are listening who are regular listeners to your podcast will probably be unsurprised by some of the material we're covering. Uh, It's been hugely successful. Um, Obviously, it couldn't be live during the pandemic, but I think it started just before, didn't it? No, I've actually, I've been doing this podcast for um, like a long time, 12 years or something like that. So I've I've been podcasting for... um, 16 years I think and I started this one 12 years ago so it's been going on a long time uh, and then in lockdown I was able I, I love doing because it's un- unusually amongst these sort of interview podcasts there's an audience and the audience is very much the 12th man and I think it's the it's the, having the reaction from the audience that gets my guests to open up as much as they have done as well as being uh, as as funny as they are. Yeah, uh, it's interesting you say that. I did um, I, I, I do one here for, called Books to Live By, uh, mm-hmm. you know, where people pick their, their their five, the five books that have sort of shaped their lives. And I've always done them, you know, one-on-one. Yeah. Uh, and then quite recently, we took them to a, a, a literary festival in Ireland, in fact, and, and Ruby Wax was one of my guests. And it was, I mean, I've interviewed her quite a number of times before, but it was completely different yeah. with the audience there. Uh, I would say a, a much improved encounter, even though Ruby's a, a, a great interviewee anyway but but the, it, it's strange that um having an audience there should lead people to being more confessional than they yes. would be uh, you know in a in a in a in a in a, in a smaller environment you know in a, in a, in a one-on-one why, why yes. do you think that is i think i've got a very lovely audience uh that come to see all of my stuff i'm like you know i've, I've, cr- I've kind of created this audience over time I've, you know we we did some tv in the 90s and i do tv every now and again but basically people who come to see me like me and know what i'm doing and and i think are generally a very good comedy audience but they listen to the serious bits they laugh at the funny bits and i think with the, the, the early examples where i had stephen fry on and he was extremely funny for an hour and then um i'd actually asked a question that a child had asked was what's it like being stephen fry and he opened up about a suicide attempt that he'd never talked about but i genuinely think it was just because there was such an amazing atmosphere of love and respect in the room that he felt 
in a safe place to do it. So, you know, if the audience are laughing, if the audience are respectful, which they nearly always are, um, then I think it just draws something out. And, you know, as entertainers, people want to, if you've got an audience there, you want to make them laugh. So I ask questions that they've never been asked before and that they I know they won't necessarily have an answer for. Uh, and that's the best way, I think, to make them they 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 come up with a story that they haven't told before. Uh, they're trying to please, and then by having opened up that part of the mind, which isn't just reciting the stories I've told a thousand times in interviews before, I think you suddenly get new, fresh stuff as the other side of the brain or whatever is being has been utilised. So it, it's you know it's all accidental, and I and it's it's sort of um, you know I never anticipated podcasts becoming like what they are. That it's my main source of income now by a long way, and uh, you know when I started it was all free and I just did it because of the autonomy and the freedom it gave me um but yeah it's it's been and I've never really done anything for this long you know it's for 12 years is a long time to do the same thing but it feels like a different show every time based on whichever guest you get and I've had I had fantastic guests on so it's been amazing and can you honestly say that you don't try and extract those morsels of information that are uh, you know original and new um, which is quite hard to do let's face it yeah. in a world where everybody's interviewing everybody I mean that's what the podcast world <laughs> seems to have become is just this whole crew of people who go round and round in circles talking uh, you know to different you know in different manner different combinations yeah. So it does make it hard, doesn't it, to make yours unique? It does. And I think, you know, again, I think because in an early interview, I was interviewing Jonathan Ross and I suddenly dried up and I think I was nervous because he was an interviewer and I couldn't think of anything to say for like five seconds, but it felt like a lifetime. So I started writing down just stupid questions to ask in that situation that were called emergency questions if I if I, if I I went wrong. And, you know, they turned out to be this, this sort of little key that opened people up. So I think by ask, you know, I've been interviewed a lot and I'm asked the same questions again and again. If someone asks you about a failed project or an obscure project or just a part of your life you've never talked about before, you're just delighted because it's, you go, oh, I get to talk about a different thing. So, you know, I think that's it. And, and, and I think there's, the guests trust me. They know I'm not trying to stitch them up or, you know, I'm not even interested in getting personal stuff, but if they want to give that, I will take it. Uh, but, uh, you know, so I think they trust me. And I think that's because uh, they know I've, you know, I'm, I'm sort of sit in the centre of being, you know, not as successful as most of them, but also uh, having done the job for 35 years or however long I've been doing it. So they... So they get that I get what's going on, I think. You talked to uh, one of your guests, the wonderful Michael Palin, about yes. the worst moment in his career. He sounded quite surprised that you'd brought it up to start with, uh, which was when he was written <laughs> out of You've Got Mail. Yeah. Um, and, and, you know, that which came as a surprise to him. Um, have you got a You've Got Mail moment? What's, what's the worst thing, like the most <laughs> painful thing that you can remember that happened in your career? I mean, I can, I mean, there's I can a think lot, of a Mary. couple in mind. No, I'm, I'm saying I've got quite a long list, but luckily this isn't me being interviewed. <laughs> uh, there are a lot. I think um, it's you know they're not necessarily funny. They're when you get sacked from things. I kind of you know I I think the worst one was I'd never rewritten in a team. I was writing. I wrote, I wrote for a show called Breeders, uh, and uh, which has done incredibly well and won lots of awards. And Martin Freeman's in it. Uh, and uh, they, in the end, I gave him my episode a rough draft and they kind of rang me up and said, this is nowhere near ready. <laughs> We're going to get someone else to write it. So, you know, and then I had to advertise Breeders on my podcast and, you know, I had to had to go, this is a fantastic show that I'm not involved in anymore. Uh, but I didn't mention that. But yeah, so I think those, I think those failures are the things, you know, that, that get you most. I think the producer could have been a bit nicer about it, just said, thanks for that, we'll 
you know, we'll put this into the process and not necessarily say it wasn't good enough. But um, yeah, but, how do you uh, how do you how do you bounce back from that? I mean, how do you stop it from torturing you? Those dark nights of the of the soul, or do, do you have them? I mean, I, you know, I think it's really as a creative person, it's very difficult because you know you are obviously I've worked for a long time, so I'm, I feel like I'm probably okay, but. But equally, I haven't had like a blockbusting massive success. And I've written a lot of scripts that haven't got there, you know, haven't got onto TV or got a certain distance and then stopped. So that one was quite tough. And I think there was just if something else came along that sort of made me think, OK, maybe I'll carry on writing. But it was almost enough to make me think, OK, I'm not, you know, I've not got this anymore or I've lost whatever I had. So but, but I think as a comedian, that's it. You know, your your life is is full of these highs and lows and I, I did my I did a gig uh, with a few other comedians in front of a thousand people in Ealing the other night uh, and it went amazingly well in front of that big audience with new material and you walk off feeling like you're like a god you know you feel like you're so full of confidence so you've got these moments that that make you think you're the greatest human being that's ever lived and you've got these moments that make you feel like you're a complete failure and you've just got to balance it up and I, I think I think the the failures are what make you. And I think, you know, obviously I had success early on with a double act and then that basically got, you know, we did four series of the BBC and then someone else took over and didn't like us. And we, neither of us worked for a, like on TV for a few years. Um, and uh, you have to go, but I think it was the best thing that could happen to both me and Stuart in that we had to pick ourselves up and start again. And, we, and we'd had quite a charmed life up to that point. And I think if you just have success, 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 it's hard to be, to to find the real you know the pearls I suppose in the middle of the the oysters if you if you've just if you've just gone from success to success so my failures are important in my life and the difficult times have been important to move on um, and yeah and and that's and then you work through them in stand up shows as I have done with testicular cancer depression uh, and you know some happy things as meeting my wife where I worked through falling in love and uh having children so it's you know it's it's a wonderful job to have in that sense and hopefully you're making people laugh as you as you go